We are in this series in the Gospel of Luke. This is our third week, and we're talking about life with Jesus. What does it mean to experience life with Jesus? So whether you are uh, someone that's been a Christian for a long time, and and you're really just kind of wanting to maybe reset and and experience and grow and go, man, I really want all of my life to be connected to Jesus. I want all the parts, not just the Sunday parts or the religious parts, but I want all of it to be connected with Jesus. If if that's you, Luke is a a great book uh, for us that we'll be studying most of this year or maybe you're someone that's not a Christian or not really sure what you believe or kind of where you're at. And it's a, it's a helpful book to be able to look at the life of Jesus and the message of Jesus and who he is and discover what, what could this be? What would this mean? And so this is what we are looking at today. I'm going to pray for us and then we will jump into our sermon today. So Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds. God, you want us to experience life with you. You want us to experience a deeper faith. You want us to experience a faith that is uh, more rooted and more connected. You want us to have a faith that touches every part of everything that we are dealing with, of everything that we are experiencing. And so I do ask now that you would speak to us, that you would let your word be clear, and that you would help us to know you and love you and, and hear your word for us today. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We all want happiness. We all want joy. Well, that's something that all of us desires in some way, and we're told this all the time. I mean, we're really told that kind of the core of life is to pursue happiness. You may have uh, looked for a spouse or someone that you're dating right now, and, and maybe you got some advice saying, hey, just find someone that makes you happy. Uh, you may think about even moving to Denver, and maybe the decision to come here, you were kind of torn because maybe you left family and coming to Denver, and maybe a friend or someone said to you, hey, look, at the end of the day, just do what makes you happy. You need to, you need to live in a place where you're going to be fulfilled and you're going to be happy, or decisions for work is find a job that makes you happy, or find um, a person, or find a home, or I mean, all, all the different, I mean, whether it's commercials, advertisements, selling to us, hey, this Coke will make you happy, or whatever it is, we want happiness. We want joy, and we look for it in all sorts of different things in different ways. And some of you maybe would say that you're happy right now. Maybe some of you would say you're filled with joy and you're having the time of your life. And maybe some of you would say you've had that at some point, and right now it's kind of fluctuated. It's not as strong as you uh, would like it to be. It's not where you would hope it to be. And so we want happiness. We try to get it in different ways. And you can even just Google, and I'm sure you've seen tons of different articles that have hit you at different times from every different field saying, hey, here's ways to be happy. This was just a, a quick search of 10 scientific ways to be happy. Practice smiling, sleep more, help others. You know, there's all all these different things. This one seems stupid to me that says plan a trip, but don't take it. That seems like that would be frustrating, not something that would induce happiness. If you have done that before and gone, yes, my dream trip, delete, then maybe I'm wrong, but there's uh, 10 scientific ways to be happy. This is just happiness hacks. I mean, you've seen all these at different times, doing yoga, feeding your brain, pet sitting, baking something, if you're good, I guess, talking to happy people, donate your couch coins. There you go. There's a quick fix if you're, if you're not happy. This is my favorite one. This is a, a book, best-selling book, that just says how to be happy or at least less sad. It's a little less ambitious 
Maybe that's where you feel you want to be happy, you're trying, but you'll settle for, uh, how about just less sad? Uh, maybe that's where you're at, right? We, we want to be happy. We try and go after it in different ways and different things all the time. And yet, most of us would say, it's not very stable. We get it and it's gone. We have it for a little bit and it's not as deep as we thought it was going to be. And maybe that's why we settle for, I just don't want to be sad anymore. Um, we want happiness. Is there a way? Is there a way to get a deep happiness, a stable happiness that actually doesn't change and is something that we can go back to as a reliable source to give us the joy, the happiness that we desire? What if we could have it, hang on to it, and it wouldn't leave us? Now, Probably most of you, if you've ever read different articles or even, I don't know, gone to counseling or talked to people and you think about, hey, what can actually give us that kind of happiness? Most people would say something like inner peace or some sort of, it, most people aren't going to say, you know how you get deep, deep happiness? Money. That's the only way. That's probably not what most people are going to say unless you're a hip-hop artist. Um, and, and, and maybe most people aren't going to say it's, uh, it's in your job. or That's not what most people say, right? At the end of the day, the scientific research and just probably what you believe is the only way to really be happy is something inside of us. And this is what, what is taught and really what is true. This is just from the New York Times, their well section, How to Be Happy. And they just kind of sum up a bunch of, this is a weird picture, but they just kind of sum up um, the, the, the research on this, and one of the things, sorry, giant quote, but it's small, but it just says, happiness often comes from within. Now, this is something we know, right? That happiness comes from within us. It's not the circumstances of our lives. It's not the, the tangible items that we have, but usually happiness is going to be some sort of internal thing. They say this, we all have a personal narrative that shapes our view of the world and ourselves. But sometimes our inner voice doesn't get it right. So if you want happiness, it's got to come from within. It's got to be some sort of story that you are telling yourself and living in, something that shapes your view of the world. And sometimes we miss it. The inner voice gets it wrong. We tell ourselves, these are the way you'll be happy. This is how. But regardless, this is true. A personal narrative, an inner voice, a story, a view of the world, but what story? What view of the world? What is the inner voice that we need to listen to? And the New York Times can give you one set of options, but the message of Christianity, the message of Christianity really says the same thing that if you want deep, abiding, lasting happiness or joy, whatever you want to call that, if you want that, it's got to be some view, some story of the world that you are experiencing. It's got to be something internal, some message internally that is shaping you. This is what everyone would say, but we just have a decision to make on what that inner voice or inner narrative of the world is that we live in and experience. And the message of Christianity is that it has the power to give us this, that it has the power to give us exactly what we desire, what the New York Times says is available, what we want. And how is that the case, that, that's what we're going to look at when we look at this section of Luke. A long section, we're going to look at several stories that Luke pieces together to give to us. Really, as Jesus is born, what is the message surrounding him? What is the message of 
Christianity? That's, that's the question that we are going to ask because if, if the message of Christianity is you can have this deep, lasting, abiding joy, if this message gets inside of you, what is the message? And I don't know your church experience. Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time. Maybe you grew up in the church and now you're kind of coming back and checking things out. But we can have different ideas of what the message of Christianity is. And if the message of Christianity is something that can give us this deep, lasting joy and we get it wrong, then that would be a sad, that would be a sad tragic fate to say there's this thing that claims it and I actually thought this was it and I got it wrong and then I don't get the joy that, that is offered. To me. So what is the message? Let me tell you what it's not. It's not, it's not to, and some of these maybe are more obvious to some of you, and some of them maybe less obvious, but the message of Christianity is not that we should love each other. It's not that we should love our fellow man and, and love our neighbor and, and be a good person and love people the way Jesus did. That, that's not the message of Christianity. It's not that even we should love God, that, that we have a, a good God and so we should love him. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not that we should believe the Bible or we should go to church or we should uh, do the things that, that the Bible teaches us. That is not the message of Christianity. There's a lot of different things that we could put into the it is not this category, but maybe, maybe it helps also to see what keeps us from the true message of Christianity. There's a lot of things it's not, but maybe it can help us to go, what is it that keeps us? If there is some message, which we'll get to in a second, but if there is some message, what is it that keeps us from going there to what it is? And really, there's kind of two different things that keep us from the message of Christianity or, or God himself, kind of two different ways that we often approach God and we often approach life. One of those is this, and, and probably based on your upbringing or maybe even your temperament, we, kind of fall, we can fall into one of these categories, maybe stereotypically, but oftentimes I think we, we kind of go, you know, most people are schizophrenic, not in a diagnosed sort of way, but we go back and forth. You're not, you know, you're not in a box, right? But there's kind of two things that often keep us from the true message of Christianity. One of them is this, that we often live our lives, and you might approach God like this or life like this, based on principles to live by. And so what I mean by that is that you can say, okay, I want, I know, I know that I'm okay. I know that life is good. I know I'm good with God. I know I'm a good Christian. I know I'm a good dad. I know I'm a good mom. I know I'm a good friend. I know whatever. It's, it's kind of, I view, I am okay. I'm good based on the way that I live my life, based on the principles that I live by. So if it's in kind of a, a Christianity or a religious context, some other thinkers, authors have said it like this, that I obey God, I obey the rules, I obey, so I'm accepted, I'm in. And often that is how we view and live our life. And if you live your life and view life and kind of God and Christianity or, or anything like that, if you view it like that, what often happens is one of two things. What might happen is that you feel very kind of proud because you're, you're doing it. So you, you look at your life and you say, I live my life by certain principles and I am doing it. And so you begin to feel self-righteous even towards others. It's easy to look down on others because you believe, man, I'm not lazy. They're lazy. Why can't they be, why, why can't they just get it? Those people is often kind of what the phrases that come out from there. Or... 
you live your life with a lot of insecurity and burden and weariness and tiredness and guilt because you believe that you are defined by your goodness, your principles, your obedience, and yet you constantly see, true or not, it might be true, it might not be true, but you constantly see your shortcomings. You constantly see that you're not living up to this. You have a vision of what you should be as a Christian, and you're not it. So you feel tired because you keep trying to get there. You feel weary. You feel burnt out. You feel maybe sad. You feel, you feel constantly kind of looking at yourself and comparing yourself to other people because you are believing, I'm defined by what I do. I'm defined by my goodness. I'm defined by the principles I live by, and I'm not there. And you know it. And so sometimes friends might tell you, no, you are there, and you get a little boost, or you look at yourself in the mirror, and you tell yourself, you are there. And, and it might work for a second, but then you're faced with it again and again and again. So if you believe, if you believe, this is really kind of what life is. This is maybe even what Christianity is. This is what maybe even faith is, is I'm supposed to live and follow certain principles to live by, and if I do, I'm good. I'm good to myself, I'm good to others, I'm good to God. That's one way that actually is not the message of Christianity, but often keeps us from the true message of Christianity and thus steals the joy and the happiness that we can have. Another way is different from that way, which is that we are really just kind of pursuing our pleasure. We're not so much concerned about, here's the principles I live by, that's how I know I'm good, that's how I know I'm okay. It really is more just, I, I need to be true to myself, I need to follow my heart and do the things I want to do and pursue my pleasure and do what makes me happy and look within. And that is what life is about. And maybe you, I mean, a lot of people believe that and believe in God. And you might believe in a very loving God and go, man, I love God so much and God accepts me and God's great. But that love doesn't actually have a lot of power. Because really it's the love that says that God is a nice God that loves everybody and feels good about everybody no matter what. But there's nothing wrong with us. There's no, there's no fear of God. There's no, man, God, the other side, I didn't say this, but the other side might kind of think God is a, a judge and feel like, man, God, God might get me, so I really got to make sure I do this the right way. The pleasure side is, man, God, God's loving. He's a big teddy bear. He kind of feels good about everybody, and he's, he's kind of nice to everybody. He's kind of like Santa Claus, and that's the God I believe in. And really, God wants me to be happy, and I want to be happy, and me and God are together in this. But that's not a real deep love of God. It's a God that's nice, but it's not necessarily a God that is loving. Those are often two ways. You might view Christianity, faith, life, God as principles to live by. You might view it as kind of pleasure and really life is about you pursuing your desires and your fulfillment. Both of those things will keep you from the message of Christianity. Thus, both of those things, according to Luke, according to the Bible, will keep you from the deep joy and happiness that all of us want to have. So back to this, what is the message? And Luke's going to give us four different scenes, four different snapshots that show an announcement of Jesus being born. He's going to give us four different pictures of here is Jesus being born and here's what comes along with that. And in that, we see what the message of Christianity is. 
So let's look at the first one of these, scene one. Luke 1, 57, Now, the time had come for Elizabeth. We talked about her last week. Can't recap the whole story. So if you're coming in kind of to the middle of it, you'll need to go back and, and read uh, the Bible. But it says this, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father, but his mother responded, no, he will be called John, because that is what the angel told them to name the child. Then they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He had been struck uh, deaf and mute, and so he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed, not just because... John is such an amazing name, but because now he is confirming what she had said, and it was very unique and different, and then immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue is set free, and he began to speak. An angel had silenced him for not trusting, believing in God. Now that he's obeying God, he is free to speak and praise God. Fear came on all those who lived around them, and that fear doesn't mean they're terrified, but it's a, an awe, and wow, something amazing is happening here. And all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. This is kind of the first announcement about the birth of Jesus. Even though this is their child, John, being born, Zechariah is saying, yes, my child's being born and he's special, but really he's special because of what the angel had told him that he is bringing the way for Jesus. And so we'll look at this first thing that he says, which really gives us a clue into what the message of Christianity is. So listen to these words and we'll come back to them. It says, so here's what he says, blessed is the Lord the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times for thousands of years. The, the Jewish people, the, Israel, the Israelites were waiting for God's salvation to come, for a king to come. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, that he, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, his kid, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew up and became spiritually strong, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel." Now, in that first scene, we get a picture of what the message of Christianity is. And what we are told is that it's salvation. We're told that it's salvation, which is very different. It's very different from here's principles to live by, and if you do those things, you're accepted, you're good, or just, man, just kind of do what you want to do and follow the pleasures of your own heart and, and just pursue your own joy and happiness, and that's really what life is. It's salvation is what we are told. 
And he describes that in a multitude of different ways. He talks about it as light coming into darkness. Now, these different metaphors are all speaking to the same realities, but they might hit you in particular ways. To think about God, to think about the message of the Bible, the message of Christianity, to think about the birth of Jesus being announced as light into darkness. Light into darkness means that life is difficult. Light into darkness means that we don't see things the way that we should see them. Light into darkness means that things are clouded to us, that we don't perceive correctly, that that we stumble, therefore, because of that. And Jesus being born, the message of Christianity is that light is coming into darkness, that you can see in a new way. That this back to New York Times, that there is a narrative, there's a picture, there's a view of the world that is false, that causes us actually to not have joy. Light into darkness means we are, God is showing us, here is what life is. God is showing us, here is who I am. Light into darkness. He also talks about it as God visiting his people. He says that God wants to come and visit his people. God doesn't want to be far from his people. He wants a family. That God is not interested in us just obeying his rules. God wants us in his family. God wants us to enjoy relationship with him, which is why he says, I have come to now visit my people, to be with my people. He talks about it as light to darkness. He talks about it as visitation. He talks about it as forgiveness of sins. To say that we all have sin in our life. We all have things that we have done that we know aren't right, and we all have done things maybe that we thought were right but weren't. And we all have things that we didn't do that we should have done. We all have sins. Probably none of us would want every thought and action and word projected on this screen. Maybe even from yesterday. We wouldn't want that. And yet God sees it all, and the good news or one of the messages of Christianity is forgiveness of sin. See, both of those things, all of that stuff of God visiting his people and light shining into darkness and forgiveness of sin is salvation. That's the big word or the big idea of what the message of Christianity is, is salvation. Very different. And in fact, it's kind of an offensive term because it says we are in need of saving. It says, I need, I, I'm so desperate that in fact, I can't live such a good life that God would accept me. I'm so desperate that I'll never get up to the principles in the right way that I should. And I'm so in need, I, I'm worse than I think I am. And yet, God is so much better than we ever think he is. That he's a savior. He's not just a teacher. He's a savior. That's the message of Christianity, which is different from every other religion's claim. All other religions claim that they have some sort of prophet, some sort of teacher that points to us the way to get to God or bliss or whatever it is. And in Christianity, the message is salvation, which is that God has come to forgive, to rescue, to visit, to bring light, to come to us. And save us. So that's what we see in the first scene. Second scene, we see this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration, this is for taxation purposes, took place while Quirinius 
which if you're looking for kind of a cool hipster name for your child, if you're pregnant, no one's naming their kid that, was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was, was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, that's Jesus, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. You've heard the story before at Christmas time, right? In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, as I'm sure we all would be. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. That's scene two. Again, an announcement of the birth of Jesus, an announcement of salvation. It's very similar in a different context, not a prophecy that Zechariah is giving, but angels announcing to the shepherds, a savior is born. When you think about the inauguration or the message that's given at the beginning of something, that tells you what it's going to be about. And if you were to go to a, a life seminar or marriage seminar and the beginning said, here's what we're going to do. We are going to help you get things together in some way. We're going to help you. If, 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 you're, uh, if it's an organization seminar, we're going to help you get organized in your life. If it's a marriage seminar, we're going to help you with conflict. We're going to help you with communication. If it's a business seminar, we're going to help you with company culture. We're going to help you with whatever it is. And it gives you kind of a plan. Here's the things that you are going to learn. What's announced with Jesus, both with Zechariah and with the angels, is salvation. It's not, here are some things that you can now do. The angel says to the shepherds, there is good news. Not just good teaching, not just good information, not just good advice, not just good instruction. There is good news. Salvation is coming. Salvation is here. A Savior is born. That's a very different kind of announcement, which is why the angels say, I bring you good news that will be great joy for all the people. A savior is born. It's not, I bring you good advice that can help you if you follow it. It's, I bring you good news and therefore there's great joy. You can be saved. And he says, one of the things that, that we see kind of unique in this scene, different from actually Zechariah hints at it also, but is said that there will be peace. He says, good news 
great joy for all the people and peace for those with whom God is pleased. Peace. We want peace. We want peace. We want inner peace. We want, I mean, we have, we have, I mean, if you think about the opposite of peace, it's not so much war as it is anxiety or stress or turmoil. We want peace because we are filled with fear. We're filled, I mean, aren't you scared of something? And I don't mean like, yeah, spiders or scorpions or something. I mean, we're scared of, we're scared of failing. We're scared of our failures. We're scared of what other people think of us. We're scared of the future, and we're unsure what's going to happen. And we're scared of death and the finality of life. We're scared of all sorts of things. And when the angels come, they say there's good news, great joy that will be for all the people. There's a Savior. And then he links that salvation to say, peace on earth to whom all that God is pleased in. See, the message that they bring is salvation, but here linked in a little bit of a different way to say, we can have peace. We can actually have peace because if you believe that God is Savior, if you believe that the message of Christianity is not that there's a way to live and you can love your neighbor, but you believe the message of Christianity is God, like, what if you believed God is pleased with me? Can't that give peace to your failures? If you believe God is pleased with me, can't that give peace to your future? To know that, man, you don't know what's going to come. You don't know what's around every turn, but you know I have a God that is pleased with me. And, and you don't know what, what we're, we can be scared of death, but we know I, my God is pleased with me, so I don't even have to fear death ultimately. See, he says that there is peace, that there's salvation. This is what gives us a power for joy. Imagine a peace of living in God is pleased with me. And I'm not saying that means God approves of every decision that you make, but to know that in an ultimate sense, God is for you because he's savior. He's for you. He's come to do something for you, not to ask something from you. That's scene two. Scene three is this. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem, where the temple is, to present him to the Lord, just as that is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice, according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, to the salvation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. 
and a sword will pierce your own soul, meaning there will be some pain that Mary is going to experience. She doesn't know what that means. We know that later it means obviously the death of her son, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Scene three, again, several of the ideas we've already seen, light, salvation, He grabs the baby and doesn't say, finally, a teacher is here. Finally, someone who can tell us how to live. But he says, mine eyes have seen your salvation, a savior. Salvation, salvation, salvation. That's the theme that you see running out, that the message of Christianity is God has come to save us. Not just come to teach us, but that God has come to save us. That we don't have to stay where we are. We have a God that is for us. And when he sees the little baby, he says, I've seen your salvation. I've seen your salvation. And he says about Jesus that he will be the rise and fall of many and that people will be opposed. Which means that some will experience Jesus as the one that rises them. Some will experience coming to Jesus as my life has changed and I've experienced things better. And some will come to Jesus and will turn from him and will experience that in actually turning away from him, they experience life not as it's meant to be, that they fall in some way. That's scene three, putting together many of the pieces that we have already seen. And finally, the last scene is this, taking place in the temple as well. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of, I don't know how to say this guy's name, but Fanuel, we'll just call him, uh, of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, this one is, you know, perhaps in this scene a little less direct. It sounds like she just kind of comes out into the temple. She's not even necessarily talking to Joseph and Mary. And she just starts praising God and thanking God that his redemption is here. And that's another word that has already been used by Zechariah, but it's another word that gives us a picture of salvation, of what the message of Christianity is, which is redemption, which is to bring freedom. Redemption is a word that implies that we are slaves and need to be freed. It's a word that says that we, there's a freedom available to us, but we need a redeemer, a savior to bring us into it. Freedom, Zechariah said, from our enemies. And our enemies might not be political enemies like they were facing at the time, but the enemies of, as also the Bible throughout Luke and elsewhere talks about the enemies of sin, sin that enslaves us, the enemies of Satan, the enemies of death, and that Jesus comes to bring freedom. Jesus comes to bring freedom, to free us from the power of those things and the fear of those things and the control of those things in our life. These four scenes together help us to answer the question, what is the message of Christianity? What is it? It's not that there's principles to live by. It's not that we can just follow our hearts and experience our own pleasure and joy, but it's that there's a person, a savior that's come to us. Imagine what happens if that's the message that gets into the core. That if, if we believe that, man, happiness and joy is available, but it's got to come from within, it's got to it's come from a vision of the world, a narrative that we live in. What if that's the narrative? That we have a God that's so good that he is savior to us. 
What if the narrative, what if the message, what if, what if the inner voice that we need is not you are defined by what you do, but you've been defined by what's been done for you? That God isn't as interested in something from you as he is in something for you. That he is a good, saving God. That brings joy, that brings freedom, that brings peace, that brings all the things that we are searching for in so many other places. Let me look at this question, which is, who is this message for? Because maybe you can believe that in general, but we might be that it's unsure. We might be unsure that it's for us. And I don't mean like on paper that you would say, that's not for me, but maybe in your life right now, you're not sure it's for you. God for me, God bringing peace, God bringing light, God being good to me, me not having to be afraid of the future, what people think, or, or, or death, or, or any, like you might not be sure that that's for you. You might believe that that's a true message, but not necessarily for you. You might see your sin and wonder if that message can be for you. You might see your failures and wonder if that message can be for you. You might see just the suffering in life, and it doesn't feel like that is true right now. Who's the message for? You know what he does? Luke, when he writes this, goes to great pains to show us and emphasize for us that this is for everyone and particularly those that feel on the outside or forgotten. I won't go back through all the things, but what we saw, what, we, what, what Luke showed us in this message being announced is that it went especially to people that were on the outside. It came to, we, we looked at this last week, but it came, to, it came to a barren old woman, someone that would have been shamed in her community to say, good news comes to you. It came to people that were old. You look at Simeon who's about to die and good news came to him. It came to a widow, someone who has no husband. And again, in that society would have been kind of a hard life and a shameful thing. And she's in the temple just praying night and day and good news comes to her. It came to the shepherds who were people that were kind of outcast in society. They weren't, I mean, I don't know if you know any shepherds, but especially at that point, they, they weren't thought of to be like, oh man, these are the awesome people. We love shepherds. We kind of have a sentimental or romantic notion around shepherds because of nativity scenes and things like that. But these are kind of blue collar guys sitting around the campfire eating chili out of a can kind of guys that weren't really your role model people. And the good news comes to them. I mean, think about that. When you, when you think about an announcement being made that the Savior is here, who's that going to go to? We would probably think the most important people. And when you have a baby, you, you announce that to your closest family first, then friends, and then Facebook, finally, right? And Shepherds is somewhere several iterations after Facebook. And yet that's who God comes to first, to a barren old woman, to a widow, to an old dying man, to shepherds, to the poor, even Mary and Joseph, I know you got this quick little glimpse in there that it says that their sacrifice was two turtle doves. And that was a sacrifice that was allowed for people that had much lower income than the traditional sacrifice of a lamb or a goat would be. So the good news, the gospel message, the salvation, the message of Christianity, of this peace from God, Luke is trying to emphasize to us in all of these announcement stories that we look at together that it is for those that are often forgotten. So I don't know if you think, yeah, this is for me. 
You might, not, you might struggle to go, this is for me. And Luke is writing this to help us see, yeah, it's for you. It's for those that often feel forgotten. It's for those that often feel on the outside. Because it's not based on you. God's love, his being for us, isn't based on us. If it's based on us, then it would have to go to the morally awesome and the wealthy and the something that would say, hey, I, I should get this. But he's saying it's not based on you. Zechariah, when he, when he gives his long kind of poetic prophecy song, he says, because of your, talking to God, because of your merciful compassion. And those are kind of redundant. Your merciful compassion. It's like, I was thinking, you know, there's words that we use when we're trying to really make a point that are similar, like, oh, it's sugary sweet, or it's, oh, the crispy crunch, or it's kind of the same thing, but you're doubling down on it to say, oh, man, the beefy, meaty goodness, you know, or you're, you're wanting to, or if you're a vegetarian, the veggie, you know, fibery deliciousness or whatever, right? You double down on kind of the same word when you're really trying to make the point. And what Zechariah says about God is the reason you're doing all this is because of your merciful compassion. Your merciful compassion. The reason you're doing all this isn't because you've finally seen that we've pulled it together. The message is for everyone, for all people, like the angels said to the shepherds, because it's based on God, not based on us. This is who the message is for, which, which means that Whatever you're going through, he sees the sin, he sees the hurt, he sees the brokenness, he sees the pain, he sees all of that in your life, not just life, in your life. And he wants to bring joy and salvation and peace and light into your life. That is what his intention is. That's what the message of Christianity is, which is why it gives deep joy and deep peace and deep freedom. And the final thing I want to look at is this, which is just how do we experience this message? The message is salvation, that God is for you, that he's done something for you. It's for all of us, especially those of us that feel maybe it's not for us. How do we experience it? And here's the the final scene that I want to show to you. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The boy, talking about Jesus, grew up and he became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Every year, his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, so we're kind of fast forwarding in time here. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey Then they begin looking for him among their relatives and friends. If you've ever been lost as a kid, hopefully this doesn't give you PTSD. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw them, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Jesus says, why were you searching for me? He asked them, didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? 
but they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Now, this ends what um, scholars will call an inclusio, which just means there's a section here and a section here that is all tied together by the beginning and the ending being similar. So the very beginning that we looked at besides the introduction to Luke was a scene in the temple with Zechariah being told something about Jesus and him not quite believing it. And then we end with a scene in the temple with something about Jesus and his parents not quite getting it. And the point of this is, as we look at all this message of here is the message of Christianity, here's the message of salvation, here is who Jesus is, the point of all this is this. We can easily miss it. We can easily miss who Jesus is. And that's what this book is intended to do. It's written to a man we looked at in the intro, Theophilus, and he says, I'm writing it to you to help your faith be more certain, to go deeper. You've already been taught these things, but I want you to really get them. The point is that we can easily miss Jesus. Jesus essentially asks his parents, it's, he's 12 now, hey, have you seen all this about me? The shepherds and the two prophecies that happened and, you know, mom, you were a virgin. And have, have you seen all this and you still don't get it? You didn't understand that I would need to be with my father because there's this special relationship. Have you seen all this and don't get it yet? That's the question that Luke is posing really to Theophilus. It's the, po- it's the question that Luke is posing about the parents that they had to wrestle with. It's the question that's posed to us, which is, have we seen Jesus and maybe still don't get it? Who do you think he is? Have you become maybe too familiar with him, maybe like they did? They had all these prophecies around him and these amazing things, but now they've been with him for 11 years. And they forget there's something different about him. There's something special about him. Have we become too familiar with him or moved on from him or maybe just aren't even sure? Eh, I'm not sure. That's the question that is posed to us. But the way that we experience the message is given to us as well. The way that the message of Christianity, that Jesus is Savior, that we can be saved, the way that we can have that and let it go deeper is given to us. It's not just a question to say, hey, Are you like the parents? It also shows us the process where this keeps getting down into our heart. See, something was said about about Mary here that has been said about her four to five times throughout the story that we've looked at so far, which is that she took these things and treasured them in her heart. It says this about Mary multiple times, that she is trying to understand the things given to her. A message from the angel originally comes to her that we looked at last week and it says she asks questions about it and she wonders about it and she ponders about it and she treasures it in her heart. And now here we are 12 years later, the same thing is said. Something about Jesus, she thought she got it, she thought she knew, maybe she had glossed over it, passed over it, missed what was there, but it says she doesn't just take that and go, okay. It says she treasures it up in her heart. She's pondering these things. She's coming back to these things. See, this is what we need. If you want to experience the message of salvation, if you want to experience that, it's a continual rediscovery of who Jesus is. 
It's a continual coming back to and doing what Mary did, which is to, to treasure in our heart, which is, gives us an image of a humble heart saying, I'm going to let this stuff get in. I'm going to let this affect me. It's kind of a heart posture and a meditative posture, which is to say, I'm going to think about this. What does this mean for my life? How does this connect to my life? That God is Savior, that Jesus is Savior. I need to think through the practicals of what this means for me. This has been Mary's journey of faith that we've seen for 12 years now. That she is continually thinking, here's who Jesus is. I got to think about this a little bit more. I got to ponder this a little bit more. I got to meditate. I got to treasure this up a little bit more. And Luke is giving to us the process. The process by which we move from hearing something to it getting more rooted inside of us. To knowing something to something becoming certain. To believing something to experiencing something. This is the process we all have to go through with Jesus. Listen, we all want joy. We all want joy. We all want happiness. We go after it in a bunch of different ways. God wants your joy too. God wants your joy too, and it comes as we know his salvation for us. It comes as we experience something done for you. A good God, a saving God for you. That's how we begin to experience it. So I don't know what this means for you. Maybe it means to just soften your heart. Maybe it means to, as Mary did, to think through the connections and, and what does this mean for my life if Jesus is Savior? Maybe it means to, to just keep investigating Jesus if you're not sure where you are in faith. And know that that can take time, even as it did with his own mother. When we come to take communion, what we're remembering is the very salvation that we speak of, that, that Jesus came to this earth and his body was broken and his blood was shed, not to teach you, but to forgive you, to free you, to save you. God has done something for us. He gave us his son so that we could be in his family and experience the deepest joy possible of God being pleased with us, of peace with him. So let me pray for us and we will sing songs and take communion responding to this good God. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your love. God, help us to grow in our understanding, just as Mary did, just as uh, this book that Luke wrote is intended for us to do. God, for those that are not Christians, I pray that you would help them to see what you want them to see, to see who you are, Jesus. For those that are Christians, that have been Christians maybe for a long time even, but maybe you've become too familiar, would you help, Jesus, for this to be fresh in our hearts again? as Mary needed. Even though maybe we've had miraculous and amazing things happen like Mary did, we can still miss it. We can still forget it. And so God, would you help us to have these things stored up and treasured in our hearts that your salvation would become our reality and our joy. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.